You can have a seat. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 14. It's where we're going to be this morning. We're opening a new series this morning entitled Fan or Follower. And I grew up in South Louisiana. And don't hold that against me, okay? But that's where I grew up. That's where I was raised. And as uh, someone from South Louisiana, I grew up with three uh, fans of three football teams, okay? So I was a fan of the LSU Tigers, all right, they're just my home state team. No matter where you went to college in the state of Louisiana, you probably gravitated toward them. They were the biggest Division I uh, football team in the state, and it was, they were a long, there was a long stretch of drought there uh, for the LSU Tigers. But these last several years, even though they have people getting arrested all the time, they've been winning on the field. Um, but I've also grew up as a fan of the New Orleans Saints. Uh, even in the years where we all put bags on our heads, okay, because it was too terrible to watch that football, what they called football taking place on the field. Uh, but the last several years have been a rejuvenation of that franchise as well. So I grew up as a fan of the LSU Tigers and the New Orleans Saints. And the third team that I grew up as a fan of was anybody who was playing the Dallas Cowboys. Right? And so anyone who took the field against that blue star, I was cheering them on and rooting for them. And I had, man, there was just such a... There was, there was such an elation that erupted in my heart earlier this year whenever, uh, at the very end of the game, whenever Des Bryant doesn't make that catch, right? It's not a catch, people. It's not a catch, okay? And so I'm just rejoicing because I'm a fan of anybody who takes the field against that blue and white, right? Now, all of us are fans of something or someone, aren't we? We're either fans of athletes or we're fans of particular sports franchises or we're fans, some of you are Rangers fans, you go to the ballpark, catch games, kind of watch the season as it unfolds over the course of 162 games. Uh, and so you're, 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 we're fans of sports franchises. You might be a fan of a particular musician. And so you go to their concerts and you purchase their, uh, their albums, uh, you know, those of us who are maybe a little older remember things called CDs that you used to purchase. Um, those of us older than that maybe remember cassettes or remember 8-tracks or remember vinyls, which are on their way back as well. Uh, but we, we purchase their music, and so we go on and we click on iTunes or whatever online software we use to download music, and we buy their, their music because we're fans of their artistry. Or we might be fans not only of athletes or of musicians, but we could also be fans of particular actors. Or we might be fans of particular stores where we like to shop, or particular brands that we have loyalty to. Or we may be fans as well of particular causes. And so we get involved in these things uh, and we're cheering them on and, and proclaiming how good whatever it is that we're engaged in and the kind of good that it's bringing in the world. And so we're fans of all kinds of things in this world. And the reality is, is that Jesus in his day, and even in our day, he had fans as well. There were individuals who gravitated toward Jesus in the Gospels. There are people even in our day who gravitate toward Jesus as well. But it's interesting because whenever you look at a particular actor or you look at a particular artist or you look at a particular athlete and the way they respond to their fans and the way that Jesus responded to his fans are, are on two ends of a spectrum. They couldn't be more stark or different because the way that Jesus responds to his fans, when Jesus in the Gospels, when he sees his popularity is rising 
And so like his blog hits are going nuts and his book sales, right? His influence is increasing. His blog hits and his book sales are going off the charts. And his popularity is increasing. And so all of his social media feeds are blowing up. He's got all these fans who are listening to what he has to say and wanting to see what he's going to do next. Whenever he has that kind of fandom that begins to arise around him, Jesus responds to them very differently than any other individual in the face of human history. Jesus doesn't sit down and have a strategy session with his followers or with his disciples or with the apostles or sit down with a marketing firm and say, now how do we couch my image here in order to maximize the influence that I've begun to develop with this particular constituency? Right? He doesn't go to his apostles and say, what's the poll data say about what I've been saying over the course of the last three weeks? Right? He doesn't take polls and listen to constituencies. Neither uh, does he get, kind of hit the brakes and downshift whenever he begins to draw large crowds and they begin to kind of suck in around him. Instead, he throws it into fifth gear and he hits the gas and he puts it on the floor. Jesus doesn't yield to the consensus and say things that would keep all of his fans happy. Right? He doesn't say, hey, guys, listen, right now what we need to do, because we've got all these people around, we need to hold a marriage seminar and teach everybody how to have good marriages. Or we need to hold a parenting conference and teach everybody all the ins and outs of how to parent their kids. Or hold a financial planning seminar where we teach everyone how to manage their finances well because we got all these people who are coming to us so we got to address all these felt needs in their life Jesus doesn't pull back in those moments but he pushes in in those moments he acts contrary to the way everyone else in human history has acted whenever they have people who begin to rise up to follow him Jesus doesn't say I can't pull back and not say anything that's going to rock the boat Right? He doesn't say, well, I've got to be real careful about what I say because I don't want to say too much about social issues because the people on the right are going to get real upset with me if I talk about caring for the poor. And he doesn't say, oh, I need to pull back. I don't need to talk too much about moral issues because the people on the left are going to get really upset with me if I talk about sexuality. Rather, Jesus continues to push forward. And he says things like, if you, when he draws these large crowds, he says to me, he looks at him, he says things like, you know what, the way up is down, actually. In my kingdom. And he says things like, if you want to live, you got to die. He says hard things to the people, these fans that begin to kind of clamor after him because they've seen his, heard his teaching and he teaches as one who has authority like no one else that they've heard. And they've seen his miracles and how he's healed people and made put, put people right with God and are putting them back together in his image. They've seen what Jesus has done, but he doesn't mince words. He doesn't shy away from thinning the crowd whenever crowds begin to emerge around him. And over the course of the next eight weeks, what we want to do is begin to take a look at some of these hard sayings that Jesus gives us about what it means to truly be a follower of his in our culture. What it looks like to build our lives around who Jesus is and what he's done. And not just be a fan who likes the things that Jesus says about our particular niche area that we're concerned about. But a follower of Jesus that begins to reorient every part of their life around him. And so you go, where do we start? Where do we start as we try and differentiate between what it means to be a fan of Jesus and an actual follower of Jesus? And I think one of the first place that we have to start, how do you know if you're a fan or a follower? One way that you know is, that, is by the cost you're willing to pay, the lengths you're willing to go, and the extent of loyalty you're willing to show to follow Jesus. And this is exactly what he says 
in Luke chapter 14. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Luke 14, 25 to 33. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it together. In Luke chapter 14, the text starts with this in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to, out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And Jesus says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I think the first thing that's crucial for us to get in our minds and wrap our minds around here in this text is this. you got to remember who Jesus is talking to. you got to remember who he's talking to. If you go back up into verse 25, the text says, Now great crowds accompanied him. There was lots of fans who were surrounding Jesus, and they were moving with him from town to town as he went about teaching, as he went about healing, as he went about uh, casting out demons. They're seeing these miraculous works and hearing him teach with authority. And he's got these fans that are clamoring around him, these great crowds around him. And that's who Jesus is addressing when he turns to the crowds. He's not turning to his disciples. He's not saying, listen, guys, we're going to go away on this little retreat together. and I'm going to teach you what it really means to go to the next level in your discipleship. That's not what he's doing. He turns to the crowds who are clamoring around him. He's not addressing Christians who are kind of on the freshman team in order to get them up to the varsity squad. Okay? He's not saying, here's like this advanced seminar on discipleship. And so these guys who've been Christians for 15 years, I'm going to pull you aside. And I'm going to teach you the advanced stuff here. The advanced stuff means you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's not what Jesus says. He turns to the crowds who are accompanying him. And these crowds were fans of people who were not yet his disciples, who were not yet Christians, crowds who had been amazed at his miracles and teachings, who were cheering him on, crowds who had expectations for what he might do for Israel and overthrowing the Romans and establishing a political agenda and reign and rule there at that time. Crowds of people who were looking for what he would do politically and economically for Israel. They were cheering him on. And Jesus turns to them and says these words. And this is how he presents the Christian life to them. He tells them that they have to choose him above everything else, above everything else in their life. He tells them that he has to be their treasure, that they sell everything to acquire. He tells them they must bear the instrument of death every day in their lives as they deny themselves. And what I find astonishing about this, which is in total contradiction to the way that we typically lead into conversations about who Jesus is, is that Jesus doesn't start the conversation. He doesn't lead with all these crowds and the fans who were not yet Christians. His leading line is not, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not what Jesus leads with. Nor does he lead with, hey, listen, if you'll just let go and let God... 
man, your marriage is going to get great and your finances will all be put in order and, and your, your kids are going to wake up miraculously completely compliant with every request that you make of them tomorrow. If you'll just let go and let God, right? God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't lead with, listen, what Jesus wants, what I want for you is to get you to have your best life now, right? He doesn't lead with any of that. What he leads with, what he leads with is if you want to be a Christian, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to come and follow me, you have to choose me above anyone and everything else, including yourself. That's what he leads with when he turns to talk to the crowds who have been his fans who have been clamoring around him from city to city. And one of the things that teaches us is this, that essentially this story in Luke 14 teaches us that the beginning of the Christian life is death. The beginning of the Christian life is death. Not just the end, but the beginning in verse 27. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me or come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, the cross in Jesus' day, it's important to wrap our minds around this. The cross in Jesus' day was not a pretty piece of jewelry people wore around their neck. It was not a symbol that they wanted to be identified with. It was not a piece of wall decor hanging in their home. The cross in Jesus' day was an instrument of death where convicted criminals were crucified and killed. That was the cross in Jesus' day, an instrument of death. And when Jesus says you have to bear your cross and come after me, what he's saying is this. He says you've got to take upon yourself this willingness to live a cruciformed life, to die, to die to everything that you once were and everything that you once held dear and to reorient everything around who I am and where I'm going and what I'm saying. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to bear that cross and come after me. And in the Greek text, those verbs of bear and come after me are present tense verbs. And what that means is this. It's not a one-time occasion, but it's a continual death every day of our lives. The beginning of the Christian life is death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said it this way. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And listen to what he says. Since this happened at the beginning of the Christian life, the cross can never merely be a tragic end to an otherwise happy religious life. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He says, since this happens at the beginning of your journey, of your discipleship, of your Christian experience, of your Christian life, of your walk with Jesus, it happens at the outset. Jesus says, I'm not going to hide this. It's not going to be a bait and switch kind of deal where I go, man, here's all the good things I'm going to give you. And I'm going to get you in three years and say, well, really what you got to do is you got to kill yourself. You've got to die to all of your agendas. You've got to die to all of your aspirations. You've got to die to all your dreams and desires. Now, Jesus says from the outset, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, if you want to move from fan to follower, the beginning, the outset of the Christian life, the beginning of it is death. The beginning of it is death. 
And it's very interesting that Jesus says this when he says it in Luke's gospel. Because in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the text tells us that what Jesus does from that point forward in Luke's gospel, he says, and from that moment on, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And there's a transition that happens in Luke's gospel at that point where Jesus is now moving to the cross. That's where he's headed. That's where his life is going to end. So Jesus is moving to the cross, and Jesus says, come follow me as I head in that direction. The beginning of the Christian life is death. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to choose me above everything and everyone. But he doesn't stop there. <laughs> because he goes on to clarify some specific things that Jesus demands from us. And I want you to hear those things this morning. First of all, Jesus, he goes, Jesus goes on to say that some of those things that he tells us about what it means to die to ourselves, what it means to live this kind of cruciformed life, what it means to, when Christ bids us to come to him, that we come and die and that we find life in him. Jesus says some of the things that that tells us is this, is that Jesus is not looking for applications, but he demands allegiance. Listen, we were on our way home from a little trip that Karen and I took last weekend. We went up to Hot Springs Village with some friends of ours who had invited us to come for a weekend. And so on our way home, we're driving through Arkansas, and there's, we come over to the crest of this hill, and there's a massive billboard sitting over on the left-hand side of the interstate. And as, I, as, I, as we pass by that billboard, I recognize that it's an ad for the Marine Corps. Some of your ears perk up in here because you have a little bit of history there. There's an ad for the Marine Corps. And so as I got closer to the billboard, I see this, this Marine who's decked out in his dress blues, saluting everyone who goes by, very prim and proper. But at the top of that billboard are plastered these words. It says, we don't, we don't accept applications, only commitments. We don't accept applications, only commitments. And in other words, the Marines aren't looking for people who are weighing their options, but people who are willing to push all their chips to the center of the table and say, I'm all in no matter what it costs. The Marines aren't looking for people who are comparing the compensation and benefit packages between military and civilian life, but people who are willing to commit regardless of the cost. The Marines aren't looking for people who are applying here, there, and everywhere, right? And if something doesn't work out, then they'll go to boot camp. Okay, they can't find a job somewhere, then they'll enroll in boot camp. But the Marines are looking for people who are willing to say, raise their hand and say, sign me up, train me up, suit me up and send me out. That's what they're looking for. We're not accepting applications, only commitments. Now, this isn't an ad for the Marine Corps. Okay, but this is exactly what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus says, I'm not looking for people who are going to, I'm not accepting applications as an employer and allow you to weigh out who has the best offer and benefits package around you to make a decision about what your life's going to be centered around. I'm not looking for applications, Jesus said. I'm looking for allegiance. I'm looking for people who are going to lay their lives down for the sake of who I am and what I'm doing. I'm looking for people who are going to build their lives around my message and my mission of declaring that greatness and the glory of God is seen and revealed in the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And those who are going to engage a community that is lost, broken, and hurting with that message to see them set free and liberated. Jesus says, I'm not looking for applicants, but I'm looking for those whose hearts are filled with allegiance and they're willing to sign on the dotted line and give everything that they have. And that their lives would be centered around me. 
In verse 26, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to choose me above and before anyone else. Before everyone and anyone, anything else that your heart might attach it to itself to on this earth. And in Jesus' culture, the primary allegiance that existed in their hearts was their family. It was their family, their biological family. And so when Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, what does he say? You've got to hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters. You've got to hate your family, he says. Not strong words, strong language, isn't it? But basically, Jesus is saying this. When it comes down to a choice between what your family desires for you and what I'm calling you to, if you want to be my follower, you've got to raise your hand and say, Jesus, I choose you every time. Every time. Listen, when I was in uh, a youth pastor over in central Louisiana, we had a kid in our student ministry there. And he was an integral part of our student ministry. God had given him some musical gifting. And he went to his parents one day and he said, I feel like God's calling me to ministry. Now, his parents were very affluent and, had, and as a result had lots of influence in the church there. And so his parents' response to him blew my mind. Here's a youth pastor who's trying to shape these, the character and convictions of these teenagers and be able to send them out to do what God was calling them to do. And his parents looked at him dead in the eye and said, Son, you're not going to make enough money in ministry. You need to choose something else. But you know where he is today? He's a worship pastor in Illinois. Because he said, I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus, not my family. Jesus said, you've got to hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters. Now, what Jesus says there is an idiomatic expression. That's what we would call it in English, in your grammar, right? And an idiomatic expression is whenever you take, when something doesn't necessarily equate with exactly what you've just said. Let me give you a few examples in English of how that works. In the English language, if you had somebody who's learning English as their second language, they'd be really confused if they heard you say that you'd just stolen someone's thunder. You go, right, this was, you have a safe in his house that he's got the sound locked away in. I'm trying to figure out what's going on there. That's not what we mean by that, though, is it? Or if they'd be really confused if somebody said, man, I can't believe they let the cat out of the bag. Go, Why do you have a cat in the bag? It doesn't make any sense. Right? Or you'd be really confused if you said, man, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Where am I supposed to get the basket and the eggs? Right? Don't throw all your resources into one option is what we'd be trying to say. But people in, who are learning English and don't quite get all the nuances of the English language, that wouldn't make much sense to them. And the same thing happens here in the text when Jesus says, you've got to hate your mother and father. Basically what he's saying, he's saying, if it comes down to a choice between the most intimate of earthly attachments and me, you've got to choose me every time. Every time. To where your love for me so far surpasses and outweighs your love for everything and everyone else that it appears as if you have abandoned them and that you are following me full bore with complete allegiance. That's what Jesus says it means to be his disciple. He's not looking for applicants, but those whose hearts gravitate toward him and are drawn to him to be centered around him with full allegiance. See, most of us think that when we come to Jesus and we want to follow Jesus and give our lives to Jesus, that here we kind of stay in the center, okay? And then Jesus kind of becomes one of those things that orbits around us. He becomes a planet, but we stay in the center of the solar system. We continue to be the sun, and Jesus is kind of like Mars, okay? He has an orbit path around us, just like all of our hobbies do, just like our vocation does, just like perhaps some of our relationships do. 
But Jesus says, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a Christian, he says, you have to move from the center into orbit, and I have to move from orbit into the center. I have to become the sun, and everything in your life has to be centered around me. That's what Jesus says. The second thing that Jesus says, he says, in order to follow me, if you want to follow me, he demands that he sets the agenda and not be used to accomplish ours. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a Christian, I get to set the agenda, and I don't want to be used to accomplish yours. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. In other words, I don't want you to use me by giving me little portions of your time and little portions of your money and little portions of yourself so that you think that somehow you can kind of use me to accomplish your agenda because you've paid in like a taxpayer, so I should then act on your behalf and come through for you to accomplish what you want to accomplish in this life. Now, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, I get to set the agenda, not you. If you notice what he says in verse 26, Jesus says not only does it mean that we choose Jesus above and before our most intimate of earthly attachments, which was in his culture, his family, which might be in our culture, our friends. It might be our social group, our peer group, those that we work out with, those that we run with, those that we uh, hang out with on the weekends. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to choose me above all of those groups. I become the center. You become a planet. But Jesus also says... He also says, if you want to come after me, you've got to choose me above and before yourself. Doesn't he say that? And yes, even what? His own life. Even his own life. So when it comes down to a decision between your desires and dreams, your aspirations and agendas, and what Jesus is calling you to, you've got to say, I choose Jesus every time. I choose Jesus every time. In fact, the word life there in our English text underneath it is the word soul in the Greek text, the word suke. And in this particular context, it means this. It means the seed of our feelings and desires, our affections and aversions, those things that we love and are drawn toward and those things that we are repelled from. In other words, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to choose me above and before yourself, your dreams and desires, hopes and wishes, agenda and aspirations, your fears and uncertainties, those things that you love and those things that you loathe, those things that disgust you and those things that repulse you. If God's calling you to them, he says, you've got to say yes to Jesus every time. That's what he says. Jesus says, I'm not looking for those, uh, I'm not only looking for those who would give me allegiance, but let me set the agenda. And here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that in our churches and across our country that there are many people who say, I'm a fan of Jesus, but they want to make Jesus their poster child in order to accomplish their agenda. So Jesus is behind me to accomplish my agenda, what I want to see happen in my life or what I want to see happen in my community or what I want to see happen in our nation. As opposed to saying, I want to be a part of Jesus' agenda. I'm going to let him set the parameters. He's got the itinerary. I'm going to follow him. And listen, I think this happens on two sides of the fence, on both sides of the fence, okay? It's not just one side of the fence that uses Jesus for their agenda and the other doesn't, but both sides, both those on the far right and those on the far left want to use Jesus to accomplish their agenda. And I think it leads us into some very scary places as churches, some very destructive places as a church. 
And here's what I mean by that. On the far right, there are people who want to use Jesus as the poster child for family and sexuality and impose that upon everyone who lives under our particular political system at this point. And let me just take this opportunity to say, in light of last Friday, a week and a half ago now, the ruling by the Supreme Court, I was not here last weekend, I wrote a little piece in response to that, put it out on our blog. Let me just say that those on the far right who, who want to legislate morality in our country, it becomes a very difficult position to maintain. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you haven't read that piece, I'd encourage you to go read it. But my response is this. Listen, in our, in, within our church, number one, I, I read a great quote on uh, an old friend of mine's uh, blog earlier this week. He said, you know what? America is not your church. It is your mission field. It's your mission field. And so as we look at the changing landscape of our culture around us, I don't want us to be known as a church as those who are on the far right who want to use Jesus to accomplish our agenda, but we're a part of his agenda. We don't want to be just the moral majority who wants to try and legislate morality, but we want to see conversion take place in people's lives because that's where change begins. It doesn't begin with legislation from the top down, but it begins with conversion from the inside out. And there are some in our, particular in our country, who want to who kind, of, kind of set the agenda and say, Jesus, we're going to use Jesus to accomplish our agenda on the far right. But then there are also those on the far left who want to use Jesus to accomplish their agenda. Because Jesus says some things about caring for the poor, and Jesus says some things about widows, or the Bible says some things about widows and orphans. And, 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 and we, we want to fight against sex trafficking, we want to fight against poverty, we want to fight against, we want to fight for adoption. And listen, those are all great things, but when it, when, it, when it boils down, if we want to try and use Jesus to accomplish our agenda of fighting against sex trafficking or promoting adoption, or we want to use Jesus to, to, to eradicate poverty, Jesus says, no, I won't be used that way on either side. It's interesting about Jesus because he doesn't just say, hey, listen, listen, you, I, I can be used for your agenda over here on the right, or I can be used for your agenda over here on the left. But what Jesus says, I want to I challenge those of you on the right. I also want to challenge those of you on the left. And I want to call those of you in the middle. Just get off the fence and give your utter allegiance to me, all of your affections and love and loyalty to me, and let me set the agenda. Because whenever those on the right begin to set the agenda, then our churches become those places where it sounds like what the gospel is, is if you behave like us, then you get to come in. You get, you, get, you, get to, you get to, behaving like us is what sets you free. Behaving like us is what makes you a Christian. But there are people who are filled with morality in churches all across our country who have never been born again. And they may vote with the right every time, but they've never been born again. And so we can legislate all the morality we think that we feel like we need to, but it's not going to change people's hearts. In fact, the church has existed throughout her history, and where she has flourished most is in places where she has been persecuted and opposed for the things that she held to. And I'm of the conviction that we are entering into a season in this nation where it's going to be less and less popular to hold to biblical convictions and to hold to truth. But we as a church will do so, but we'll do so with compassion. 
by loving people and not beating them on top of the head and not trying to hijack Jesus and use him for our agenda. Because when that happens, we end up lobbying as a constituency for moral issues. And we begin to send off messages like you're not really a Christian unless you fight for the family or unless you homeschool your kids. Then you're, then you're really a Christian if you do those things. Or on the left... Right? Say, you're not really a Christian unless you seek to eradicate poverty. You're not really a Christian unless you adopt a child. You're not really a Christian unless you fight against sex trafficking and give money to those organizations. And so it sounds basically like just more of a, a liberal legalism over on the left-hand side. This is a very conservative legalism. This is a very moral liberal legalism. But Jesus says, I get to set the agenda, not be used in order to accomplish yours. And my hope is that we as a church would be the kind of church that says we want to be about Jesus' agenda. That commits itself to gospel proclamation that brings conversion from the inside out and not legislation that brings, tries to bring change from the outside in. I'm not saying we don't speak. I'm not saying we remain silent. What I'm saying is that we speak with compassion and love even for those that we disagree with, even as Jesus did and gave himself for those who are rebels against him. Jesus says, I get to set the agenda. Now, whether you're on the right or the left, are you trying to leverage Jesus to accomplish your agenda? And say, well, you're not really a Christian unless you fight for this, or you're not really a Christian unless you fight for this. And then it sounds like, well, the church is really just those people who are filled with either very moral legalists or very social legalists. And Jesus says, no, I want to get at the heart. Because when you change the heart, then the whole life begins to change. The third thing that Jesus says in this text is not only does he demand to set the agenda, not only does he demand our allegiance, but he also demands that we abandon every other source of identity in our lives. Look what he says in verse 33. He says, in order to be his disciple, we must renounce or surrender all that we have. Now, the, this reference is to probably to our possessions, and I think of the story here of the rich young ruler. And I find it very interesting because when Jesus has people coming to him, not everyone goes away happy. <laughs> because Jesus says to the rich young ruler, he says, listen, he says, this young man comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, here's what you got to do. You got to keep all the laws. God says, well, I've done that. I'm pretty good, right? Look in the mirror. I've, I'm, I dress right. I eat right. I speak right. I don't do the things that I'm not supposed to do. I do do the things I am supposed to do. I'm pretty good there. And Jesus says, here's one thing you lack. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you come follow me. And the text tells us that man that day, he went away sad. He went away sad because he had great wealth. See, Jesus says, in order to come to me, you've got to renounce everything that you have. And I think that one of the part of the reason that he says that is because so many of us, our identity is so bound up in our social status. And the kind of home that we live in, the kind of car that we drive, and the kind of clothes that we wear. And Jesus says, you've got to renounce all, you've got to surrender every other source, abandon every other source of identity. So that I become your identity. And you're not concerned about what other people think about you or the kind of house that you live in or the kind of car that you drive, or whether or not you have carpet or wood floors. 
not concerned about what other people's opinions are of you. Because Jesus' opinion of you is the one that matters. And so you want to live to please him, not please others. So you abandon all other sources of your identity. You say, Jesus and Jesus is alone is the foundation for my identity. Now these are pretty stark demands that Jesus lays. He says, if you want to follow me, I'm not looking for applicants, but those who have allegiance. If you want to follow me, I'm not looking to accomplish your agenda. I'm looking to include you in, a, in fulfilling my mission. If you want to follow me, you've got to set aside everything, surrender everything, renounce everything that you think defines you. And now be defined by me. So some of us are going, man, that is hard. What gives Jesus the right? What gives Jesus the authority to say these kinds of things? And I want to close with this. Two things that you've got to look at if you want to go, I choose Jesus above and be it before anyone or anything else in this life. Two things you've got to look at. The first thing you've got to look at is who he is. You have to look at who he is. If you look in verse 31 and 32, Jesus tells, gives an illustration. He gives two illustrations really there in the text. And one is about counting the cost of building a tower. He says, you don't want to get to the end and go, I didn't have enough resources to finish. So you've got to determine what it's going to cost before you say yes. And I think Jesus is saying that to these crowds who are following him because he wants them to know what it is to follow them, not a bait and switch technique. You've got to consider what it's going to cost you before you sign on the dotted line and say yes. But then in verses 31 and 32, he says, you also got to consider whether or not you're able to go up against the greater king. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus uses an illustration about one king who's about to go off to war against another king. And the other king has twice the amount of firepower. In other words, this exponential amount of strength and might and power in comparison to you. And he says, you've got to consider whether or not you want to try and go toe-to-toe with the king who is infinitely more powerful than you are. Or whether or not, while he is still a long way off, you're going to try and make peace. And Jesus says, if you want to hang on to your life, if you want to hang on to your agenda, if you want to hang on to all your other loyalties and earthly attachments, if you want to hang on to all your other sources of identity, Jesus says, you're going to be firing missiles at this great king in order to, and you've already instigated the war and you're going to continue to fight it until the day that he comes to destroy all those who rebel against him. He says, why not, while he's still a long way off, send and make peace? And Jesus, in order, if we're going to surrender everything that we have, if we're going to surrender everything that we have, we've got to see who he is. He is the great king. He is the great and awesome and powerful king. The New Testament speaks of him in several occasions as the king, and one of those is in Acts chapter 17, where this great ruckus has begun in one of the cities Paul was traveling to in order to preach the gospel. And there's this guy named Jason who welcomed Paul into his home and gave him housing while he was there for three weeks contending in the synagogues, telling the Jews about who Jesus was and what he had done. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7, it says, And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. 
And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. These men were saying, listen, Caesar is not the ultimate seat and source of our authority, but Jesus is. So no matter what Caesar says, we're going to bow to him. No matter what Caesar dictates, we're going to bow to Jesus because he is king. When you get to the book of Revelation, you fast forward, you see that Jesus is coming back one day in Revelation 19, and he's got a robe that's dipped in blood, and on his thigh he's got this big tat, right, that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's coming back to judge and make war on all those who continue for the rest of their lives to fight against this greater king. And they would not surrender their allegiance, and they would not let him set the agenda, and they would not redefine their identity on the basis of who he is and what he's done. And Jesus says, do you really want to go toe-to-toe with the greater king? You've got to be convinced of who he is. See, here's what I'm afraid of, is that our churches sometimes are filled with people who made a decision to follow Christ on the basis of emotion in a moment. They got really teary-eyed in a revival service, or they got really teary-eyed at camp on one occasion. And so they came back, and somebody told them they needed to trust Jesus, and they trusted Jesus. Somebody told them they needed to be baptized, so they got baptized. But they never said, here's my allegiance, here's my affection, here's all my love, here's all my loyalty, because I am absolutely convinced, Jesus, that you are king. I'm absolutely convinced, Jesus, of the fact that you rule and reign as the sovereign Lord of all creation. And so when that feeling goes away, what happens to their faith? It disappears. And they spend the rest of their life chasing that feeling again. Or I got to get back where that music was really good. Or I got to get back with that particular pastor. Or I got to get back with that group of friends. Because I got to find that feeling again. But if your faith is grounded in the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all creation, it provides a firm foundation because you go, I'm going to yield to Jesus. He is king no matter what anyone says to me or does to me because I'm convinced of that truth. That's a fact settled in my mind and a conviction settled in my heart. Not because I'm chasing a feeling, because I'm living on the basis of fact. So I surrender everything to him, even when it hurts, and even when it costs, because I don't want to go toe-to-toe with that great king. But Jesus doesn't just come to us as a great king, as a dictator, but he comes as a deliverer. And this is the second thing you've got to look at. Not only do you have to look at who he is, but you've got to look at what he's done. You have to look at what he's done. When you fast forward in Luke's gospel, you get to the end in chapter 22. You see Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And he goes uh, before the council of the Sanhedrin to be tried in the religious court of his day. At that time, Peter denies him. The crowd begins to mock him. He saved others. Can he save himself? He goes before Pilate to be tried. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with him, so he sends him on to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate, and Pilate eventually delivers him to be crucified. And on a cross, he is mocked and murdered. And Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. So you've got to see that this great king who rules and reigns and sovereign over all creation, who has infinite strength and power that you do not want to get in the cage with because he will tap you out and destroy you every time. But he didn't just come to be a dictator. He came to be a deliverer. 
to set you free from living based on your own agenda, to set you free from living with allegiance to yourself, to set you free from all the other sources of identity that would define you. That's why he came. You know what he did? He did everything necessary in order, in order to set you free. I love C.S. Lewis's writings in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a story of these four young children in, in, who are in this war-torn England, and they stumble their way through a wardrobe into this land of fantasy where there are all these talking animals and creatures, and there's a white witch, and there's a great king named Aslan who's a lion. And one of the young children's name is Edmund. And Edmund has kind of been the second child. The, the, the second, you know, the, the, there's Peter and then Edmund. And Edmund has always played second fiddle to his older brother. And so when Edmund has a chance to betray all the rest of his family for a piece of candy, he does so. And then he gets locked away into the white witch's dungeon. And the white witch brings him before the great king Aslan and says, Our laws demand that justice be done. The law demands that Edmund be slain, that blood be shed. The law demands it, at which point Aslan roars. He says, do not quote our laws to me. And as they deliberate about what would be done, his two younger sisters, Lucy and Susan, come before Aslan. And Lucy says, please, Aslan, please, can anything be done to save Edmund? And Aslan says, all shall be done. All shall be done. He didn't just come to dictate. He came to do it all, to deliver, to set free, to liberate. And unless you look at that and you see what he has done, you will never redefine your identity around him. You will never offer your allegiance to him. And you will never let him set the agenda for your life. You've got to be convinced that he rules and reigns as the great sovereign king over all creation who has done everything. Who has done everything. To deliver you. Jesus says, this is what it means to follow me. And I'm afraid in my own life at times, as I even think through some of my own choices, that some of us have been in churches all of our lives, but we've never truly crossed the line of faith. We've never given up control. We've never offered our undivided allegiance to Jesus and never let him set the agenda. Though we have sung about surrendering all with our hands raised, we've never surrendered our desires and dreams, our aspirations and agendas. That we've declared that Jesus is better. We have never renounced everything we have as the source of our identity. And though we've had an emotional response in the heat of a moment, we have never been absolutely convinced of the fact that Jesus is the greater king over all creation with whom peace needs to be made before we are destroyed. And we've never truly seen the very peace treaty that we need has been signed in his blood. We're going to worship together this morning. 
in response to what God has said. And here's my hope for myself and for all of us in this room this morning, is that if you have never crossed the line of faith, that you would, be, you would see what Jesus demands, but you would see also what he provides. He's done everything to deliver you. And because he's done everything to deliver you, and he's the great king, he can demand it all from you. And if that's you, my prayer is that you would cross that line of faith this morning. And if you have, and you've fallen back into that tit for tat, I want my agenda, I'm going to do what I want to do, is that you would come in repentance and brokenness before God, and you would say, I want nothing but Jesus, because he's better than everything. Let's pray together. Father, we come today, and we thank you for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray in my own life and the lives of those who are here, God, that you would give us the grace that we need to say yes to you above and before anything or anyone. And we would see that you have done everything necessary. That you did not leave it to us. And because of that, because you've given all to us, we would give all to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.